Spotlight on monitoring, safeguarding in research. Hello, I'm Nastasia Getchim and this is Spotlight On, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. Spotlight On is a new series where we take a deeper look at one organisation or individual's approach to safeguarding that has been really innovative. These are short insights from practitioners that aim to inspire. On this episode, we talk to Dr. Bintu Mansare about monitoring safeguarding practice in research. Bintu is a medical doctor, a public health specialist, and a researcher with interests particularly around child health, child trafficking, and all other forms of sexual and gender-based violence research. She lives in Sierra Leone, where she currently works as the lead research consultant at the Institute of Gender and Children's Health Research. And she's currently leading a project that explores the access that survivors of human trafficking have to sexual and reproductive health. Bintu recently published her second book in a child public health series called Ami and the Safe Keepers Project. On this episode, we'll talk to Bintu about why it's so important to make research safe and how we can use learning from her recent research with survivors about making research safer in the future. Hi Bintu, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi Anastasia, thank you so much for that introduction. So perhaps can I ask you to start by just telling us a bit about your story and the work that you're currently doing with survivors of human trafficking? Getting into research was a bit... I just stumbled into it. Actually, in medical school back home, it wasn't something that we learned in school. But I had the opportunity to be part of the polio eradication scheme in my country with the Ministry of Health and sponsored by, funded by WHO. So we go to villages and ensure that every child, every missed child is vaccinated Looking back at the work we did then, and I was also part of the Ebola vaccination trials, looking back at all what happened made me realize that research could be made safer for everyone involved, but especially for the ones list in the consortium with the least power, the data collectors, for example. We went to villages that we are miles and miles away on bikes, on motorbikes. And that was very unsafe looking back now. There were not enough safeguarding measures for us that were data collectors basically at that time. So that was how now I think about it. That is how important I think safeguarding is. And when it comes to human trafficking, my career, my work has always been about children and keeping them safe. And my interest in child trafficking was mainly internal child trafficking because I feel like that has the least attention paid to it. Everyone pays attention to child trafficking crossing boundaries, international boundaries, but within countries, especially in my country, we have a group of children called Men Pekin. They are basically kinship foster children that don't go through the legal system just family and friends giving their kids to somebody else to take care of them. And because of the lack of legal structures surrounding that, there is so much room for abuse. So that is where my interest in trafficking came in. And because I do work in SGBV with survivors of sexual and gender-based violence, then obviously opportunities to work with women who have been trafficked happened. 
my current project is we have a lot of women who go to the Middle East in particular to look for jobs and then they come back with horrible stories about being sex trafficked. So that's what my current project is about. Sounds like a really important project. And so with this project that you're currently working on, what have you done to try and make the work that you're doing and any research that you're carrying out safer? Have there been some specific things that you've done to make it safer? Yes, because when we do work with such vulnerable people, I try to put myself in their shoes and see what can I do to ensure that they're safe. But it's also asking them what makes them safe. So when we started, when we recruited the participants, we asked them where do they want the interviews to take place, knowing that these are returnees. Some of them don't have places to stay. Some of them have been abandoned by their families. So are you living somewhere that we can go meet you that is safe? And it was interesting to note that 100% of them said no. They were not living in places where they feel like they can actually participate in a study and be able to answer our questions so they wanted us to provide a safe space so because it was covid we made sure that we could do it in our offices at a time that was suitable for them so these are some of the things that we did we introduced the data collectors to them basically the facilitators we made sure they knew everything about them the information sheet was packed with safeguarding guidelines and something that we did towards the end of the study is to pilot a safeguarding questionnaire. Basically, this is just an analysis of what you, if they felt safe during the study. So that is what we're doing now, hoping that this questionnaire would guide our future studies based on their responses. And this is something that we want to do with every study that we're doing to ensure that we make sure that we have learnings on safeguarding from the ones that actually are going through it. Because I might sit here and think that what I'm doing is fine, that I've put in safeguarding measures, but actually it's not enough. These are some of the things that we've done so far. So you mentioned the safeguarding questionnaire. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? What, what were you particularly interested to learn about through the questionnaire? So this questionnaire had a few headings. So the first one is safeguarding understanding because in our country, safeguarding is relatively new. I know it's new in so many other places, but we're still trying to put up structures for it. So I wanted to know what is their understanding of safeguarding, which from the few stud, um, answers, it's not much. But the questions under that is, what makes you feel safe in, in a study? If you feel unsafe at any time, do you know where to report this? You know, simple questions. And something else we asked was motivation for taking part in the research. Because when they are vulnerable, we've had the stories wherein people who are supposed to help actually use that vulnerability to abuse these women. So we want to, what is your motivation for taking part in the study? Were you coerced? Were you promised something? And this is the end of the study. Have your motivation changed? Do you basically, how is, do you, do you realize that this study is beneficial and questions on the research sites? Cause that is very important for them to know, for, for us to make sure that where we are actually doing the study is safe. So were you concerned for your safety when coming and leaving the, the study sites? 
accessing the study location, is it safe? Then questions on the research process are obviously that is the last one and that is important the timing and the duration of the study was the facilitator polite and things like that and these questions are done by the safeguarding lead not the data collectors or the facilitators that you've been working with throughout the study and the importance of confidentiality is told as well we don't take your names the safeguarding lead probably doesn't know all of you so they don't take your names they just want your responses and these are some of the questions that, and the last one is what more could be done to make the research process safe because they know what will make them feel safer and that is what we want to learn for future studies. And you mentioned that some, some of the women that you interviewed using this tool so that they weren't so familiar with safeguarding. Was there anything that you did through your questionnaire or through engaging with them to help them understand safeguarding uh, and to kind of explain this concept to, to your participants? Yes, we did. During recruitment and even during the study, we the, the term safeguarding is what is new. This is something I always say when they say safeguarding is new in places. The term is new, but the concept of safeguarding isn't. So when you break it down in the local languages, the word safeguard is used in my local language in a context that nearly means the same. So in our local context, I can say, Nastasia, can you safeguard my phone for me? That means, can you protect it? Can you make sure nobody touches it? So people know what the word means. So it's just, it, it's just, explaining it now in the terms of research for a broader audience say safeguarding means keeping just like you want to keep your phone safe it is the responsibility of the research to keep all of you safe with that same understanding so they do get it when you explain it in that way great that's so interesting and just another kind of follow-up question so have you tested out this questionnaire now and do you have any sort of learnings from that yes we have we're getting we're getting responses from the the questionnaire well all of them know where to report because it's in their information sheet and at the start of every of every data collection activity it's posted there how to report so which was good that they knew where to report some of the the things coming back are about the research sites which was good not that the research site wasn't safe but because some of them lived at the far side of town so they had to spend a lot of time coming to the research site and going back to where they are it might not be seen as a safeguarding issue it might be seen as something else at, at logistics but when it comes to doing research in such vulnerable pop populations everything is a safeguarding issue how long does it take to get to where you are how long does it take to get back home it's a safeguarding issue so that's some of the learnings we're getting and makes us think about other research probably find locations different locations closer to where their survivors are even if we can't do it at their own place in their own houses so for me, it is a learning process and it is really good. And even the motivation for taking part in the research, because we use gatekeepers. 
and you see some of them saying oh we, we we decided to take part in this project because we felt that we will be getting help we'll be getting money and some stuff like that and then you see them changing at the end we've gotten so much more now we're able to do advocacy we understand that what has happened isn't our fault we are not alone because they've made relationships they've met other survivors during the project and they've seen how all of them were lied to to be taken to the middle east so some of these questions are so important and we're learning so much from from the survivors on what to do for the phase two hopefully and for other studies as well Bintu, you mentioned quite a lot about motivation in participating in research just then, which kind of leads me on to my next question, which is obviously this questionnaire you did after participants had already taken part in the research. So were you concerned about, you know, fatigue or the, the potential danger of re-traumatisation about going back to the participants? And was there anything that you did to mitigate some of those concerns? I think that piloting this one with this study made sense in a way that even though the research aspect of the study was done, we had some funds to do what the participants wanted. So we were also piloting, they wanted to do advocacy, so we're, we're doing a documentary with them. So this was why we decided to do the safeguarding questionnaire whilst they're doing rehearsals for their documentary. So we told them about it. When they came for their rehearsals, we talked about the importance of safeguarding and why we're doing this and more importantly for phase two. And they understood and were so enthusiastic because they've been in positions where no one asked them what to ask their opinions. So it was basically when they come for rehearsals for their documentary, that was when we did interviews with just one or two of them and then they go off, which was why it was slow. We're not doing it with all of them at the same time. So when they come, we talk to one person, they do their documentary, they go. So we don't keep them. So when the, the person who is not doing a documentary at that particular time is being asked the safeguarding questions and then she goes off and joins the others. So with future studies, if we want to do this at the end, we have to introduce it at the start and tell them that at the end of the study, maybe a few days after the research and they've rested, would like to ask them, how the research was and just get their input. It's like reflections that we are supposed to do, but researchers do reflections at the end of studies. We just don't do it with participants. So it's just about just letting them know that this is something added that they will be asked to do and hoping that they want to take part. Obviously, it's not by force. Great. So yeah, making it an optional thing. And then just what one last question just around the questionnaire. You mentioned that obviously you were talking about safeguarding and you're talking about whether the participants did or did not feel safe. Did you have anything in place in case any of the participants did reveal that they were unsafe or wanted to make a sort of report? Yes. So we thought about it and we planned for it. So we planned an investigation. We did training for safeguarding investigation because that's different from just taking reports and we made plans with when they come when survivors come into Sierra Leone they're linked to counselors who counsel them and get them back into society so we had relationships with those counselors in case during the research process they need them 
because they were no longer in contact with them, but they know them, they know their stories. And so all of that was in place. And since it was the end of the study, we reassured them that there will be no repercussions. They won't be in contact with anyone who would have done them harm and they had not reported. So it's about putting all of these things in place and anticipating what will these safeguarding measures be and obviously links with social services that they may need that they that might help them. And it's it's an amazing one because they are so vulnerable. There are lots of structures lacking for these returned survivors of human trafficking. So it's an opportunity as well to make contact. So we've making contact with a lot of people who Hopefully with the documentary as well, when they see what these women have been through in their own words, we would be able to get the safety nets for them. It is a tricky one really when these uh, safety nets are not there, but because of our previous works, we have a bit of connections. So we are already thinking ahead. What happens if they make a report that needs to go to the police? Okay, we have connections in the FSU and we can immediately make those reports. What happens if they can't stay where they are? Because maybe it's not about the research, it's about where they are staying, they're being abused. Where could they go? So it's these connections again and thinking ahead, what are the possible answers they would give and how we can support them and make sure that they are safe. Great. And yeah, as you say, just highlighting the, the importance of thinking ahead and making sure that you've kind of planned for any outcome. Thank you so much. I've got uh, one final question. So our listeners are from you know who work for a small organization i wonder if there is anything that you think they might learn from from your questionnaire and if there are any steps that they can take maybe from the learnings that you've made from your questionnaire to improve any sort of research that they have planned i feel well the question well the question yeah i feel very strongly about it i feel like we have to let survivors know. But thinking about it, thinking about the answers, this is something that we can do at different points in the research, during the research process. This is something safeguarding leads can do instead of just waiting for reports. But actually, because the lack of reports during research does not mean that the research was safe. It just means that probably some people did not want to report, feels like they couldn't report. So I feel like this check-ins with this questionnaire is something that can easily be done at different times during the research. Make sure they're safe, make sure they still want to take part in the study. Yes, it's cumbersome. What happens if you lose some of your participants by asking these questions? But the study is about making sure everybody is safe. And this is something simple that we can do. The questions can be tailored to whatever study you're doing. It can be very short. The The end of the study one can be long, but just this regular check-ins with your participants and even your data collectors. Because when we talk about safeguarding, especially when high-income countries are coming in about safeguarding, their focus is on the participants because they are thought that they are the, they are the ones with the least power. But power imbalances also occur with local data collectors. So these have to be interrogated across the board because these local data collectors are, so, are sometimes really poor people themselves, really vulnerable people that are taken from these communities to collect data. So simple things that we can also do to ensure it's safe for them 
give them adequate notice ahead of data collection activities, ensure that the transport that they take is safe, ensure that we are not collecting data during, say, the rainy season in my country where places are prone to flooding or the monsoon seasons in, in Asia, not collecting data until late at night. These are simple things that we can do to make sure everybody is safe, even for the participants and for the researchers and during the months of ramadan for muslim workers we've seen it data collection goes way into the night they can't break their fast or they have to delay breaking their fast that is a safeguarding issue as well then hiring already vetted transport when i did the who study that was done in the district where i was working we got bike riders that they selected and that made us feel a little bit safe even though we were going into far off places imagine traveling for miles in the bush with a bike rider you don't know just to go collect data because at the end of the day you you have to get paid and you need the money so what i will tell these small organizations like mine it is our responsibility to be the gatekeepers for those who work with us and for us. Research should no longer be extractive or exploitative. And that is our job as, as the safeguarding team. Not only the focus on SGBV, but these tiny, tiny things that we don't pay attention to, that we have to. We have to ask the questions. We have to make sure that everybody is safe and feels safe. Great, thanks. And those are some really practical responses. I mean, yeah, about remembering to include the data collectors as well as the participants. And, you know, some of the considerations seem really simple and maybe even logistical around timing and around location, but they can ha certainly have an impact on whether or not people feel safe or are putting themselves in danger. Brilliant final thoughts. I think you said that you had engaged with SFU. You've got links with SFU. Could you let us know what that stands oh. for? Oh, the Family Support Unit. The Family Support Unit is the branch of the police that deals with cases of like SGBV reports and crime. So basically just link with, links with the police. The different um, units could be the ones that deal with domestic violence, the ones that deal with fraud, but just having these contacts and letting them know that you're doing a study because that is really important, as I said the last time. So they're on the lookout for that. Well, thank you so much, Binti. It was so great to hear from you. That was Bintu on monitoring safeguarding in research. There was just so many interesting learning points. So we've decided to put them into an infographic, which you can find and download in the description of this podcast, as well as the questionnaire that Bintu was referring to in her interview. And if you'd like to share your own experiences of monitoring safeguarding and research, or to share any reflections on Bintu's approach, we'd love to hear from you. So please comment on this post on social media, and we can start hearing and learning from one another. Thank you to Bintu for sharing her experience and to all of you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope to see you on our next podcast. <laughs>